The stakes are huge for California on September 14th. Climate policy, vaccination rates, and even control of the U.S. Senate. We'll recall it all on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, and Link to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 373 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. I want to start off by thanking all of you who shared their thoughts on the passing of Neil Conan, the former Talk of the Nation host and a longtime friend. The outpouring of affection for Neil, who hosted TOTN from September 2001 to its ending in June of 2013, was tremendous and wonderful to hear and read. And many were emotional, just as I was. I think I received more comments on last week's Political Junkie, which was about my friendship with Neil and my favorite archival stuff about him, than any other show ever. In the event you haven't heard it yet, I hope you find a time to listen. You can hear it, along with all the other 300-plus archive shows, at (laughs) krpoliticaljunkie.com. Old friends, old friends, sat on their park bench like bookends. A newspaper blown through the grass falls on the round toes of the high shoes of the old friends. Old friends. Winter companions, the old men. On Tuesday, voters in California are going to decide whether their governor, Democrat Gavin Newsom, should be recalled from office. Back in 2018, when he was first elected, Newsom won 62% of the vote. He beat his Republican opponent by 3 million votes. It was the biggest California gubernatorial landslide by a non-incumbent since 1930. It was the first time ever Democrats won three successive gov races in the Golden State. His friends were talking about a White House bid in the future. Now they're talking about survival. His survival. With less than a week to go, polls indicate that Newsom will survive the recall. And perhaps that's true. Democrats far outnumber Republicans in California. But often it's the angry who are motivated to come out and vote, and angry voters are out to topple Newsom. John Myers is our go-to expert on the California recall. He's the Sacramento bureau chief for the LA Times. John, it's great having you back on the program. Thank you, Ken. Good to be with you. Thank you. Well, less than a week to go. Uh, What's the mood in California? Well, I mean, it's it's unsettled, and I think it has been unsettled for this entire campaign. I mean, you know, it's as a lot of folks will know, this is the, only the second gubernatorial recall in California history, only the fourth in American history. Um, everyone has tried to look at that one in 2003 where Arnold Schwarzenegger was elected and then Governor Gray Davis was shown the door. They've tried to look at it as, uh, you know, as the 
prologue uh, as, as a template for what we're going to do. It was a very different race, and this one has been um, just kind of um, unsettled, but in, in the same way, um, on the same line the whole time. And that largely is it was uh, driven by conservative political groups and conservative activists. It has remained a conservative slash Republican effort all along. It has never really eclipsed that uh, that uh, place to get into, like, you know, the broader mainstream of California. And Gavin Newsom, who took a lot of grief over a lot of pandemic decisions over the course of the last year and a half, uh, has continued to stay a little bit above it by the fact that his Democratic Party and his fellow Democrats seem to have finally woken up and decided, hey, this is serious, we need to vote. I mean, that was the story all along for a while, was whether we were going to have apathetic Democrats, who, as you said, outnumber Republicans. And at this point, it looks like they've gotten the message. Um, and if the polling's right, and polling's not always right in politics these days, we know, uh, Newsom escapes this. But there is still some time to go. We'll see how it turns out. Well, you, you alluded to the 2003 um, uh, recall, but just like that one, this is a two-tier voting process. Please explain. Yeah. Um, it is both simple and complicated, depending on how you look at it. The simplicity of it is, is question one on the ballot says, do you want to recall Newsom from office? Yes or no? Uh, if a majority of people, 50 plus one, 50 percent plus one, uh, say yes, then Newsom's fired before the end of his term. Question two is, if he is recalled, uh, who do you want to replace him? And there are 46 candidates' names on the ballot. And, of course, the, the complexity here, I think that's the simple part, the complexity is that none of those 46 candidates seem to have broad-based support across the spectrum, not just Republican, for example, but Democrats, Independents. There are no well-known Democrats on that second question. And the other part, of course, is that the second question, you only have to win on plurality. And the, the example that's often given is that Newsom could receive, you know, uh, 5 million votes on the first ballot but lose on the first question. And you get to the second question, and someone like Larry Elder, the conservative talk show host who's uh, leading the polls on the Republican side, could win a million votes in the second question, but because that's a plurality, be elected with fewer votes than Newsom got. They are two separate questions. Um, there are a lot of people who think we need to take another look at the recall process in California. We said that after 2003, and none of that really happened. Uh, but that's where we are. And so Newsom you know, is kind of fighting as an up or down vote on his own, even though He's clearly trying to make this a race about, do you want one of these people on the second question? Do you want Larry Elder or someone far right as a conservative? And that's worked for him so far. Well, before we get to those uh, uh, those Republicans or those other candidates on the ballot, and you refer again to back to 2003, uh, Gray Davis's approval numbers were only about 30 percent back then. Right. What do the voters think of the job Newsom is doing? Yeah, that's a place that this is really different, Ken. Um, uh, Gray Davis's poll numbers were, uh, you know, in the basement for a long time. The state was in the middle of a huge uh, fiscal crisis uh, that had been precipitated over the course of a couple of years. We'd had an energy crisis and blackouts in California. Davis's approval numbers were, quite frankly, horrible. Uh, Gavin Newsom's approval numbers have never really gone that low. You know, they've hovered around the 50 percent mark. They've gone a little over the 50 percent mark even as this recall move forward. And the reason that can happen for people who don't see this California process is that it's relatively, and I have to use that word relative, it's relatively easy to get a recall uh, qualified in California. You need uh, enough voter signatures equivalent to 12% of the votes in the last gubernatorial election. So they needed about 
1.6 million uh, signatures, voter signatures, to get this on the ballot. Remember, there are 22 million voters in California, so that's not a huge percentage of the California electorate. And so you have a recall, even though you have Newsom, whose job approval numbers have never really gone down. Have people been unhappy about sometimes about his efforts in the pandemic? Absolutely. Uh, his approach to opening schools, his approach to closing businesses. Wait, wait, but that wait, has wait. Not tr- the French Sorry. laundry restaurant. Yes. Well, the French laundry, uh, I think, helped get the recall on the ballot. I mean, that was sparked, you know, where he went to this fancy Napa Valley uh, restaurant and didn't wear a mask the whole time. That was all happening while that recall petition was out there, and that got some people really angry. But that's a, you know, that's a momentary anger, I guess, versus a long-simmering problem. And that was the long-simmering was what Gray Davis faced. Newsom has not faced that. And I, and I do think, uh, Ken, we can't emphasize it enough, that's a fundamental difference in this race. And that may be what saves Newsom, should these numbers pr- keep going where we think they are, is that people have not seen this as a long-term thing. They've seen it as a momentary uh, fit of anger. There were 135, something like 135 candidates on that wild 2003 recall right. ballot. I know, I think there's, what, 46 or so on, on this, on, on the September 14th ballot. Who are the most, you mentioned Larry Elder. Uh, talk about the most notable candidates. Yeah. Well, first of all, we should say there are no notable Democratic candidates. There's another difference from the 2003 California recall, where uh, the lieutenant governor at the time, Cruz Bustamante, was a Democrat and decided he'd throw his hat in the ring, and that made uh, the Governor Davis uh, camp very angry. And they still, to this day, say that's one of the reasons that Gray Davis lost the governorship. There are no prominent Democrats on this ballot against Gavin Newsom. The party stuck together. The most notable Democrat is a YouTube host named Kevin Paffrath. He has, you know, a little under 2 million YouTube followers, and he talks about real estate there. But that's that's as far as it goes, and Democrats are well-known. The Republican side uh, really features three or four notable uh, Republicans. Larry Elder, who I mentioned a little while ago, a longtime uh, conservative talk radio host out of Los Angeles, uh, who leads all the polls, uh, name ID, and also kind of playing the red meat Republican card here, has aligned himself with a lot of former President Trump's uh, view on things. Uh, You have the former mayor of San Diego, Kevin Faulkner, long been discussed as the guy who would save Republican politics in California, somewhat more of a pragmatic Republican. I think some people will listen to this if I call him a moderate and tell me he's not moderate, but he's more pragmatic. He seems to try to reach across the aisle. Um, And then you have a couple of other Republicans. You have the guy that Gavin Newsom beat in 2018, a businessman named John Cox, whose recall campaign is turned into driving around the state with a, a Kodiak bear in tow. I kid you not, a large Kodiak bear saying you need you know, rough, bearish kind of policies in Sacramento. I can't quite explain it. And he's been driving around with a large ball of trash talking about it's time to clean up the streets. I mean, this is really only in California could we have this discussion, I guess. And, um, and then a state assemblyman who is more of a, um, uh, a, more of a popular with the base uh, gentleman named Kevin Kiley, but who's just starting his political career and probably would not uh, resonate here. So you've got, that's the Republicans. You've got the talk show, you've got the sideshow on the streets, you've got the mayor, you've got an up-and-comer, but you really don't have any one of the star quality that you had with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And that, yet again, a comparison of the two uh, recalls, is a big difference. You just don't have anybody who, who um, people in the middle or other people other than really rock-ribbed Republicans are going to take a look at. You also have Caitlyn Jenner. 
Yes, and I haven't missed. I, I, I apologies to to Miss Jenner. I did not mention uh, reality TV star, former Olympian Caitlyn Jenner, who made a great big splash with national TV interviews and hiring former uh, President Trump's campaign manager and kind of adopting that platform, but never, ever moved in the polls, uh, never seems to have gained any traction, took off for several weeks for a reality TV show to tape in Australia at the beginning of the campaign, and again, is a, a, a novelty in the media universe, but has not registered anywhere else. And so um, that quickly faded into the, the, the gentleman that I mentioned earlier, the only ones. Why run for governor of California and then disappear in Australia for several weeks? It's hard to explain any of that. I mean, she says it was a pre-existing business uh, deal that she had made, that she had signed before she got in the recall. I mean, you know, there have been critics who have pointed out that Caitlyn Jenner's campaign has been more driven by selling tchotchkes on her website and T-shirts and bumper stickers. And perhaps there was a financial element to it more than actually running. And buttons. Don't forget buttons, John. <laughs> buttons for you, of course, Ken, of course. <laughs> yeah. And Larry Elder, we're talking about Larry Elder now. There were some major accusations against, about, against him regarding things he said about women. Well, Larry Elder, you know, has had such a long career in talk radio. And as a lot of people will know, you, you rarely get in trouble for anything in talk radio because it's all about, you know, how outrageous can you be and what ratings can you get. But that long career has followed him. And a lot of the things he has said, uh, the one you're alluding to is he wrote an article some years ago that uh, was quoting a study about women don't know as much about politics. He says that was the study's conclusion, not his words. But, you know, that, that's a criticism. Um, he faced accusations from a former fiancé. Uh, about his behavior toward her. Uh, he has said all kinds of things. In the last few days, uh, apparently he said on a talk show uh, that, you know, maybe slave owners uh, were due reparations after the Civil War when someone asked about reparations for black Americans. I mean, and, and you know, and as a black American himself, Larry Elder has always gone against the grain of what that conventional wisdom would be about his politics. That's what's helped him have such a successful talk radio career. But that's, you know, that's a challenging place in politics. And I, I have to tell you, I think there are a lot of Democrats in California who have felt like Larry Elder is the gift that keeps on giving in this race. Every time something new is revealed about something he said, they feel like it only helps their case that the recall is a risky proposition for California voters. Now, that may or may not be right, but that's the messaging they've used. And I think so far it has been pretty successful. If Newsom wins, and as I said, the polls indicate that he will, or at least survive, I mean, if he survives, if he triumphs, um, and the polls indicate that, what happens next year when he's up for re-election? I mean, Kevin Faulkner, others who were obviously planning to run in 2022, what happens to the Republican Party if they couldn't beat him in 2021? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And I think um, baked into your question, Ken, is this idea that Republicans probably felt that if they had a chance to win a statewide race in California, this special election that was off the calendar where turnout might not be as high was their best chance. So what happens if they don't win it? I think part of that depends on, I mean, to be really careful here, I mean, we could wake up on Wednesday morning and have a governor-elect elder. So, I, you know, I, I'm going to be that guy that people listen to the podcast and say, well, there he goes, he was wrong. But if, if Gavin Newsom prevails, I think the first question will be by how much? Is it by a, you know, a, a sliver, a hair, you know, just a, an inch, or does he prevail quite handily? I think that'll say a lot about his fate uh, for another four-year term in 2022. But Larry Elder, 
Kevin Faulkner and perhaps some of the others have said they are going to run again in 2022. So I don't think we're going to see the end of this conversation. And I, and I want to give your listeners kind of a preview. There are a few things coming down the pike in California politics. We have these statewide ballot measures uh, every two years that draw lots of money and attention where voters can write their own laws. There are these ballot measures that are in the pipeline that would take, um, that would be essentially a school voucher program to take money out of the state treasury and give it to people who could use for vouchers for their own private schools. Larry Elder is a huge proponent of that, and I can see him piggybacking on to that for another try in 2022. So I think my message is this race is only round one of what I think is going to be at least a two-round battle. The word had long been that uh, Newsom had White House ambitions, but he's certainly not going to challenge Kamala Harris, uh, who's a friend of his, right? Should she become a presidential candidate? Yeah, I've always referred to, and, and I've had advisors close to Newsom who won't doubt it, that uh, Gavin Newsom and Kamala Harris are frenemies. Yeah. Uh, they, they are friendly, but they've been competitors. They both came out of the cauldron of San Francisco politics at the same time. And right, I think that Newsom's uh, ambitions, uh, his Potomac fever that a lot of California governors have had, was quelled when Kamala Harris became vice president when she was put on the ticket with President Biden. So I think that's a challenging place for him. Never say never in American politics and presidential politics. Who knows what would happen? Newsom would have to come out of the strong, I think, for national ambitions uh, to be realized. Um, he always has fancied himself a chief executive, but I would not be surprised at some point to see Gavin Newsom have an interest perhaps in the United States Senate, depending on what Senator Dianne Feinstein does uh, down the road. But uh, right now he's got to beat back this recall, and he not only has to do it a little bit, but he has to show that he comes out stronger. I think that would be the real message uh, that he would need to have some kind of national ambitions. Well, you mentioned Feinstein. She's 88 years old, and there's you know always questions about her health. And I think, I mean, a Democratic nightmare would be Newsom getting recalled, um, uh, Dianne Feinstein having new health problems, and a Republican governor ultimately appointing a Republican who would replace her which would, which would give Mitch McConnell and the GOP control of the Senate. Um, you recently wrote about the Democrats sending out apocalyptic messages, you know, that if the recall was successful, it would doom California as we know it. Uh, let me play a little tape of Newsom about a week ago. There's nothing more consequential than the issue that brought me here today. The starkest contrast between myself and all of the folks on the other side that all supported Trump and support Trumpism is their support to end the mask mandate and to end the vaccine requirements, quote unquote, before their first cup of tea. The leading candidate, Larry Elder, wants to end mask requirements and vaccine requirements before his first cup of tea. His model is Texas and Florida and Mississippi. And I hope people pause and just consider the life and death consequences of that decision. We have among the lowest positivity rates in America. They have the highest positivity rates in America. We have one of the lowest case rates in America. They have among the highest case rates in America. Their hospitalizations are off the charts. Our hospitalizations are plateauing. There is no more consequential decision to the health and safety of the people of the state of California than voting no on this Republican-backed recall. And his commercials are just as urgent. Here's what you need to know about the September 14th recall. Voting yes elects an anti-vaccine Trump Republican. 
Voting no keeps Gavin Newsom fighting the pandemic based on science, compassion, and common sense. And here's the thing. If you don't vote, we could have an anti-vax Republican governor of California. So do your part to stop the spread. Every voter will receive a ballot in the mail. Mail your ballot or vote in person by September 14th. Vote no on the Republican recall. Republicans, of course, see it differently. Here's a Larry Elder commercial. People ask, why recall Newsom? Well, he acted like a tyrant, ordering your kids out of public school while his kids continued their in-school private education. He closed tiny stores but kept big chains open. His rich cronies got richer. And while the poor waited for unemployment checks, $11 billion meant for them went to crooks. He's arrogant. He's incompetent or worse. I'm Larry Elder, and this is a fight for the soul of California. Recall Newsom. Elect Elder. First of all, how much money is being spent on this recall? And what are you seeing on the TV? Is the TV getting blanketed with ads? It is. I mean, if the, the, the vast majority of money in this race is uh, on the side of Governor Newsom and the no on the recall campaign. Um, you know, easily $50 million that was spent in the month of August. I mean, California is still a, a state, you know, with 22 million voters, 40 million people that you campaign in statewide strokes on television, on national, on, on television ads. Um, so the governor has raised most of the money. Uh, Larry Elder's been reasonably successful, especially as a first-time candidate, a lot of small donors, but a fraction of Newsom's money uh, is what the uh, pro-recall people have, have put in this race. And so it's lopsided in that sense. Um, you see the governor's message a lot more than you see Larry Elder's. Um, and also, too, you know, the, the ads that you play, Larry Elder is one of those direct-to-camera, uh, Gavin Newsom is the bad guy, and I'm going to shake it all up. But there's nothing in the elder campaign that says what I will do other than I will not be Gavin Newsom. You know, and, and you and I have watched politics for a long time. The question is, are voters motivated by hope or fear? And, the, of course, the answer is they're motivated by both. But this has really been, in both of the ads that you played, a fear campaign, a fear of what happens if you don't vote on my side. I saw that Elizabeth Warren and uh, Amy Klobuchar have uh, come into the state on behalf of Newsom. Uh, Kamala Harris is scheduled for the day after re- the day after we're recording this. But are national Republicans coming in? I mean, it's hard to imagine pro-Trump Republicans helping the recall cause. It's been pretty quiet. I mean, and, and you know, you've kind of hit on something now. Maybe I should make myself a little note here for the final days of this campaign of what we should be thinking about. But we really haven't seen a lot of that. For example, Kevin McCarthy, the, uh, the House minority leader from Bakersfield, uh, we haven't really seen a Kevin McCarthy push to recall Governor Newsom. We, you know, and he's probably, he is, uh, really the most prominent Republican out of California at this point. So we haven't seen a national presence. We've seen some money. You know, former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee, uh, I think Newt Gingrich has, you know, weighed in in kind of a, 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 a little bit of a way. But you haven't seen that kind of uh, let's rally the troops across the country to win this one in California. And that's another, I think, a reality check that California Republicans uh, would have to have an inside straight, you know, in poker terms at best, to, to win this race. Um, let me just give you one other data point. There are almost two Democrats for every Republicans in this state. So even if you get every Democrat to vote for the, I mean, excuse me, if you get every Republican to vote for the recall, um, you've got to hope that those Democrats, as I said earlier in our conversation, stay home. And now that it looks like they're not, uh, 
there's, it's really, really hard to win with those numbers. And again, when a campaign doesn't appeal to anybody but base voters. So maybe national Republicans have sensed that uh, this is just too hard of a, um, too hard of a race to, to put too many resources into. Let me ask you a final question. Um, if the recall is defeated, do you, do you think it means that California voters love Gavin Newsom or they, or they, just, they just don't want a pro-Trump Republican replacing him? Well, that is kind of the question, isn't it? And uh, if, if, you're a, if you're a supporter of Newsom, you certainly hope it's the former. I suspect at the end of the day that if this recall is not successful, the story out of it is that there was anger, there was palpable anger at a moment in California, that it led to this recall being successful. This recall began before the pandemic, by the way. But that, that the pandemic led us to this moment to have this kind of primal scream. But at the end of the day, there just wasn't enough there. And while Newsom has struggled, um, I think even with some Democrats who have been frustrated by his style, some by his governing style in Sacramento, uh, I think the old adage in politics is still true. You can't beat somebody with nobody. And due respect to the Republicans, none of them have risen to the level that enough California voters might be willing to take a chance on them. Again, I say that, and your listeners hear that, and something happens on Election Day, and, you know, I'm eating crow. You know, I think that's really the, the question here is that, or the ultimate thing is that at the end of the day, they just didn't see enough to remove him from office. That's what I think will happen. That's what the lesson should be, should Newsom prevail. John Myers is the Sacramento Bureau Chief of the Los Angeles Times. John, thank you as always, and I hope you enjoy the next bunch of days. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. California, then we fell into the shiny sea. Former Illinois Senator Adlai Stevenson III, son of the 1952 and 56 Democratic challenger to Dwight Eisenhower, died this week at the age of 90. He was a guest on The Political Junkie a year ago, talking not about his own career, but about his father's decision to throw open the choice for a running mate to the delegates at the 1956 convention in Chicago. That was an amazing moment in political history, and I wanted his son's take on it. But young Adley had a sterling resume as well, which we didn't get to talk about. He was elected state treasurer in 1966. Four years later, he toppled the Republican appointed to the Senate to replace the late Everett Dirksen. Re-elected in a landslide in 1974, he was talked about as a presidential candidate or at the minimum a VP. Neither ever happened nor did he ever become governor, despite two runs in 1982 and 1986 against Republican Jim Thompson. What follows is my interview with Stevenson, recorded last summer. In the old days, there were moments when a person would be nominated for president when he least expected it. That's what happened to Adlai Stevenson in 1952. Ladies and gentlemen of the convention, my fellow citizens, I accept your nomination and your program. (laughs) 
I should have preferred to hear those words uttered by a stronger, a wiser, a better man than myself. But after listening to the president's speech, I even feel better about myself. <laughs> and in the old days and in the current era, presidential candidates announced their choice of a running mate. For the longest time, the announcement was made at the convention. Here is President Lyndon Johnson at the 1964 convention in Atlantic City. My, my trusted colleague, Since Walter Mondale picked his VP in 1984, the presidential nominees have announced their number two in advance of the convention. Either way, the decision was made by the presidential candidate. That was not the case in 1956. The aforementioned Stevenson broke with precedent and left the decision up to the delegates. You'll have to listen carefully to hear Stevenson's announcement. In these circumstances, I have concluded to depart from the precedents of the past. I have decided that the selection of the vice presidential nominee should be made through the free processes of this convention. Among those in attendance at the Chicago convention that year was Stevenson's son, Adley III. Young Adley was just 25 years old back then. In the years since, twice elected to the Senate and twice sought the governorship, which his father once held. And he's here on The Political Junkie to talk about that convention. Senator Stevenson, it's an honor to have you on the program. Oh, you're kind. I'm delighted to be on it. Thank you. When I think back to 1952, of course, I was a mere tot back then, but Dwight Eisenhower, who defeated your father in 1952, he was personally popular, but Democrats saw an opening, having won control of the House and Senate in 1954. They sensed that Ike was vulnerable in 56. So I think my first question is, how much pressure was there on your dad to run again? Well, I think there was a lot of pressure. And then, of course, as you point out, it came to uh, the uh, vice president. And because he had the uh, nomination all sewed up by then, he uh, threw open the convention, hoping to stir up some excitement. It stirred up a uh, hot contest between uh, Jack Kennedy and Estes Kefauver. Uh, but privately, we, my father, my, you know, our business associates, uh, were, were privately, we were rooting for uh, Kennedy. In fact, I remember uh, as the balloting was swinging back and forth, uh, running downstairs, find Kennedy pulling up his trousers to, uh, you know, go down to the floor and accept the, uh, uh, the nomination. I, I shook, you know, shook his hand, congratulated him. <laughs> By the time I got back to my father's uh, rooms, uh, uh, Kennedy had lost the nomination. And, you know, it was a lucky thing for him because, as it was, he was brought to the nation's attention. And he was not implicated in a failed contest for president and vice president. Right, exactly. And in addition to Keith Offer and Kennedy, it was also Hubert Humphrey and Al Gore and Robert Wagner, the mayor of New York City. They also threw their names into the, the hat. I'd forgotten that. You're right. Yeah. 
What do you remember most about that convention? Well, I remember that uh, the most because uh, in the California primary, he locked up the uh, locked up the nomination, <clears throat> and attention then focused on the vice presidency. You know what? One thing that always stuck with me about that convention uh, was the strong opposition to your dad from former President Harry Truman. Truman backed your dad in 1952, but then in 56 he backed Averill Harriman. Do you remember why there was a, was there a feud between the two? Do you remember? Um, the only explanation I've heard was uh, my father's uh, reluctance. He did not want to run for president, and Harry Truman just couldn't conceive of uh, somebody not you know taking the opportunity to run for president. Up until that time, I think they had had a a good relationship, but that caused uh, Truman to, you know, question my my father. What I'm most interested in, I mean, the reason we're talking about this convention is because, as you say, as we've talked about, leaving the choice of a running mate up to the delegates. Do you remember talking to your dad before his announcement? Did you know he was going to do that? Uh, I'm pretty sure, I'm not certain, but I'm pretty sure he did know. And, um, you know, when you look at the, when you, I'm going to play a little piece of tape from NBC's coverage, which was hosted by Chet Huntley and David Brinkley. But, I mean, they were breathless. It was so exciting. And, and as you say, Kennedy started off with a huge delegate lead and he came close to going over the top. And you said you actually went over to him and congratulated him because you thought he was going to win it. He's going to win it. Right. Well, I was just saying, but then, you know, it was just a matter of minutes after that that Keith uh, Hoover uh, won the nomination, which was uh, a good thing for Kennedy. Yeah, that's true. Let me, let me play a little bit, a piece of tape from that coverage uh, as, you know, Kennedy had the lead, but then things started going Keith off his way. Let me play a little bit of that tape. Mr. Chairman, with thanks to this great free democratic convention, I request that my name be withdrawn in favor of my colleague, Senator Estes Kefauver. Hello. Surprise. Oklahoma. Mr. Chairman, Oklahoma desires to change its vote from Senator Gore since he has released us to Senator Kefauver. Another surprise. Does Minnesota desire recognition? Chairman, the great junior senator of Minnesota asks that Minnesota cast its entire 30 votes for the next vice president of the United States, his good friend, Senator Estes Keefover. Again, for Keefover. As Keefover's nomination became clear, uh, Kennedy spoke to the delegates. I think what has happened today bears out the good judgment of Governor Stevenson in deciding that this issue should be taken to the floor of the convention. Because I believe that the Democratic Party will go from this convention far stronger for what we have done here today. And therefore, ladies and gentlemen, recognizing that this convention has selected a man who has campaigned in all parts of the country, who has worked entirely for the party, who will serve as an admirable running mate to Governor Stevenson, 
I hope that this convention will make Estes Kefauver's nomination unanimous. Thank you. Which led to Kefauver accepting the nomination. I want to express my appreciation to Senator Kennedy for his graciousness in moving that the uh, nomination be unanimous. I'm very grateful to all of you who supported me. You know, another thing that I thought was fascinating uh, for the vice presidential nomination is that it included Kennedy is a future president, Humphrey is a future vice president and almost president, and Albert Gore is the father of a future vice president and almost president. So you had you had giants in the uh, in the Democratic Party. You you mentioned that um, you, you you would have preferred Kennedy. Now, I know that Kefauver and your dad had run against each other in both 1952 and 1956. Did they have an okay relationship, though? Well, I think that's all there was. It was okay, but it was not close. You know, your great-grandfather was vice president under Grover Cleveland, and your father sought to, ran for president in 52, 56, and, and 1960. Was there any doubt that you would go into politics? No, I spent my whole life preparing for it and serving in, in uh, politics. And uh, by the way, 76. So 20 years after Chief uh, Harbor won the nomination, I was one of five finalists for vice president. At the but I, but I, I, I didn't want it. I don't. I mean, what what are the duties of the vice president? Nothing except to wait for the president to die. Well, except we have seen the fact that we've seen vice presidents like Dick Cheney and uh, Walter Mondale and uh, and Joe Biden get more and more responsibility. I mean, back in the old days, it was just waiting to to check on the president's health. But in, you know, with starting with Mondale. Um, the vice president became a very important and influential figure. So you have no re- you have no regrets. I mean, I remember Mayor Daley, Mayor Richard Daley, saying that you should run. You would make a great vice president. You have no regrets uh, staying out of it, huh? No, I've got plenty of regrets, but uh, I, I, you know, I, I rightly felt I wasn't uh, ready ready for it, and. Uh, was already thinking about going back to Illinois to run for governor, and then maybe for uh, you know for president, which I eventually did. Did you enjoy serving in the Senate? Uh, I did, and the Senate that I entered. But uh, the seventies was a transitional era. Um, became more and more episodic. Uh, more visual, electronic, uh, and uh, money started playing a, a bigger role in the campaigns. Some strange people started getting elected, and I could see uh, Ronald Reagan rest over the horizon. So I had my two terms. I thought I'd, it was time for a breather, and uh, I could go back to Illinois and. Uh, prepared to maybe to find to you know run for governor. Although when you ran for when the the two times you ran for the Senate in nineteen seventy and nineteen seventy four, you won overwhelmingly. I mean you didn't really need to raise that much money. You were so popular. 
you know, I could have easily got, I think, easily got reelected to the uh, Senate. 1980, right. The Senate, I won two to one. But I saw the Senate changing, and I always preferred, always wanted to, uh, you know, to be governor. I wanted to talk to you about the 1956 convention, but I'd rather talk to you about your, your dad. I mean, he was, to many Americans, he was one of the most beloved politicians of his day. When you think of him, what comes to your mind? Total integrity and wisdom. He had traveled the world. Uh, he, too, I think, sort of unintentionally had spent his life caring for politics. And uh, he didn't compromise. Uh, you know, he was a brilliant uh, governor, very spontaneous uh, uh, sense of humor. Everybody, you know, loved him. Very eloquent. And uh, he would have made a complete president, but, you know, that was not to be. It was tough running against a war hero, wasn't it? Oh, I think a returning war hero, you know, it's hopeless. And that's one of the reasons why he didn't want to run. He wanted to finish the job. He started that campaign for uh, uh, the president with no staff, no money, nothing, zero. He was drafted. He was so eloquent at the convention that uh, the convention overruled his uh, reluctance. It literally drafted him. It was the last time when a candidate, when somebody walked into a convention as a non-candidate and walked out as the nominee. I mean, that doesn't happen anymore. No. I think it's uh, it partly owing to the knowledge that it would be very hard to defeat Eisenhower. There wasn't a whole lot of competition for the uh, nomination. Do you ever think of what would have changed had your father been elected president? What would have changed in the country or the world? Well, uh, the Dulles brothers would not have held office. I think, uh, you know, Eisenhower on the whole was a good president, but with respect to international affairs, he was weak. And uh, he incidentally is reported to have had a great deal of uh, respect for my father. And I don't think there was anything like hostility. But he had uh, international affairs... uh, there was a weakness there, namely the uh, John Foster Dulles and his brother at CIA. And there was also Joe McCarthy in the Senate. Uh, well, didn't, didn't Eisenhower stand up to McCarthy? Well, if, they, if he did, he supposedly did it behind, uh, behind the scenes, because outwardly he, he basically you know, let, left everything up to the Republicans in the Senate, and they finally uh, censured him, but that was four years later. That was years later. Yeah, I think that's right. Senator Stevenson, it was just wonderful having you on the program. It was wonderful to be on it. It's a fascinating subject. I thank you for the opportunity. Righteous man of the earth, oh, have you been patient? I suppose our thoughts about United Nations Adelaide, Adelaide, what did you say? And what is the answer? Adelaide, Adelaide, what did you say? And what is the answer? That's it for this week's show. 
Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please be safe. I'll see you soon.